Hello. Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes. To the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Catherine. We are uh, continuing our uh, series, summer-long series, studying the Apostles' Creed, looking at different passages from Scripture that might illuminate or expound upon the meaning of different components, words, phrases, lines of the Apostles' Creed. And today we're at our second-to-last installment. Next week will be the last in this series, this is our second to last, and it's been a joy to dive deeper into the meaning of the Apostles' Creed together, and not just the creed, but the meaning of the gospel and the Christian faith and life that Jesus has purchased for us, and so it's been a joy. Uh, but two more, and so before we dive into this part of First Corinthians, I want to ask if we could pause and, and bow our heads in prayer. Let's pray together. God, thank you so much. Uh, for the gathering of the saints here this morning. Thank you again for the baptism of Caroline and of Annabelle. And thank you for the presence of all of your children, the big kind and the little kind, uh, here right now. And we pray your blessing upon your family. This is what you call us, a family of faith in Christ. And we pray that you would, with all your fatherly tenderness and kindness and truth, to come and draw near to us. Help us as we study your word, and in this brief time, uh, do something, O Holy Spirit. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, recently on the internet, I was looking at uh, some amusing, some funny real estate signs outside of homes. Uh, don't worry, I wasn't house shopping, not looking to move or leave. Just viewing some of these amusing real estate signs, there was, for example, one that had on one of those signs out in the front yard of a home for sale an extra little sign that said, free, free pizza with purchase of home. <laughs> Somehow that was supposed to be an incentive of, of some kind. Uh, another sign actually read, I mean, for real, uh, not haunted, Right? I don't know how many people go to open houses afraid that the house might be haunted, but they just wanted to make sure that it was clear. Here's another one that I found especially interesting. It had a sign, in addition to all the real estate agent's information, a sign that said, I'm beautiful inside. It also had one of those uh, emojis uh, with hearts for eyes, right? Beaming with love. And then another sign that said, honey, stop the car. We need to rush in. Go see this one. This house that apparently was professing, I'm beautiful inside. And if you look closely at the picture in the house in the background, you might have found that sign a little bit surprising because it was an older home 
nothing particularly beautiful on the outside. Its features seemed a little bit, well, dated, and it looked a little bit run down. In fact, the house had clearly been neglected for some time, maybe even decades. It had been on the market for quite a while. But you see, that sign, I'm beautiful inside, seemed to make a promise that at first might have seemed hard to believe. It was an invitation for the bystander or the passerby to believe that there's actually something more beautiful, something precious about this home, more than it might seem from the outside, more than meets the eye. I'm beautiful inside, so come on in. You know, maybe the church of Jesus needs a sign like that at times. Because the church is often a little bit like that house, and what I mean by that is this. The church is a human institution, and Christ has entrusted his body to sinful human beings. Redeemed people, yes, but human people nonetheless, people who are deeply flawed. The gathering of saints, in fact, are a gathering of deeply broken people, people who make mistakes, in fact, all the time, sometimes with grave consequences, a people that are marked by, a community that is marked by, sometimes outright sin and error. Not so impressive on first glance, and yet at the same time, the testimony of the Bible is that like that house in the picture, there's something more beautiful, more precious about the church than it often might seem from outward appearances. There's more than meets the eye. The Apostle Paul understood this about Christ's church. In fact, so much of what I just said about the true nature of the church comes from some of his writings in the New Testament. What we have before us today is a very short excerpt, the first three verses of his first letter to the Corinthian church, a church startup in the grand cosmopolitan Grecian city in the first century named Corinth. The Corinthian church was deeply, almost embarrassingly flawed. If you were to go on and to read the entirety of the letter that Paul wrote that this segment is just the introduction of, you would learn that this was a church that was marked by infighting and factions. People were not able to solve their own conflicts, personal differences, and so they were dragging each other to court. There was rampant, even flagrant sexual immorality practiced in their midst. There was confusion about the truth of the resurrection, a core belief of Christian followers of Christ. 
They seem to know nothing of love, so much so that Paul wrote the 13th chapter, which is one of the most beautiful and provocative explications of the nature of love. No, it's not just a plaque for the wall or a reading at a wedding. It actually was a rebuke of a people who knew nothing about the love of Christ. And here's a people that were constantly questioning the authority of the Apostle Paul opting for other leaders that they thought suited their needs better, which is precisely why Paul opens this letter stating, I'm called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, sent by God. You see, Paul is writing to a church that by almost every measure seems to have gotten more wrong than they've gotten right. And in our times, as people look upon the church, especially from afar, it seems that the examples that we have around us often are not much better. As you're well aware, the church always has been subject to weaknesses, mistakes, flaws, and even evils. But in recent years, again, there's been a spotlight placed again upon corruption in leadership of many churches, upon a plague of abuse rampant, both sexual and spiritual in nature, and then cover-ups upon cover-ups all too often a mishandling of these cases, division racially, politically, and otherwise. And so as a result, so many have begun to walk away from the church. In fact, 40 million Americans in the past 25 years have called it quits on church attendance for many different reasons but not excluding reasons like the ones I just mentioned. The ugly side, the sinful sides of the church of Jesus Christ. And I want to be quick to add that that description might include some of you that have fallen victim to some of these types of scandals, disappointments, disillusionments. Maybe you here today are somebody that almost had to drag yourself into a worship service after a long break away Maybe you're still wondering yourself, what am I doing here? Again, if that's your story, mercy to you. It may well be a a longer, longer process of recovery for you from that kind of hurt, especially if you or someone close to you has been a victim of abuse in the church. That's not everyone's story, of course. But it's hard sometimes for people to to feel like there's a trustworthiness to congregations that bear Christ's name. But what I want to bring to you from God's word this morning is this, that we would notice how in the opening verses of Paul's letter to this flawed Corinthian church, how Paul continues talking about this church with this kind of language, where he rehearses what's true of them, spiritual truths, even beyond the evidence of their failures. 
So for example, in verse 1, he refers to our brother Sosthenes, brother. That's family language. For all the ways this church has hurt Paul, he has not given up on calling them his spiritual family. He says it again in verse 3 when he refers to God as our father, not my father, and I don't know who you is, our father, shared family life in Christ. Secondly, he refers to this terribly sinful fallen church as God's holy people. You'll notice he says in verse 2, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. That word sanctified, sort of spread out in its true tenses, can be rendered to those who have been made holy in Christ. That doesn't just mean morally perfected. That means set apart in God's heart as different, as precious. In other words, God sees you as one that dazzles him. God sees his church as something that makes him well up with affection and loyalty and sacrificial love. Indeed, even to the point of death. Solidarity. The Apostle Paul at the end of this section says, I'm writing not only to you, but also you together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. In other words, he's saying that you are part of this wider movement of the gospel that God has ignited all over the Mediterranean region, indeed the whole world, and you are part of us. We're not disconnecting ourselves from you. We're not distancing ourselves from you. We're saying that you are us. We are one. God's people together. And then most importantly, he refers to the church in Corinth as what? The church of God in Corinth. The church of God. This is a church that's made by God, finds its origins of him. Not a human creation. Made by God. Sustained by God. Its future depends upon Him, not human effort, not even human faithfulness. Belonging to God, a church of God, it means it's His. It's His possession, His people, His, yes, flawed and sinful, yet redeemed and sanctified, holy, beloved people, this is the church of God. In other words, this is the point here. The church is not merely a human institution, finite and flawed. The church is a supernatural organism. Indeed, the very body of Christ himself. Dear friends, have you recalled to mind recently that the church, including but not limited to this local expression here at Grace Britain Hill, expression of Christ's church, that the church is supernatural. Not simply a religious NGO, nonprofit, not simply a human community, but indeed the very spiritual dwelling and presence of the body of Jesus him 
self. And that's hard to believe when you're better attuned to the flaws and failings of Christ's church than you are to these very promises and these very words. Which is why it helps for us to rehearse again and again what the Bible says about the church. Matthew 16, verse 18. This is Jesus himself talking to his apostles. I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Jesus is the one building his church, and Jesus is not going to let it fall apart. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, the church, Paul says, is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. In Acts chapter 20, Paul says to the elders in Ephesus, be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood, referring to the cross of Jesus. So again, the church is Christ's possession at great cost to himself. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 23, where Paul says the church is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. In the space of the community of God's people is not just the presence of sin, but the presence of God. He himself lives in our midst. Let it just blow your mind. And then Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15, the whole body is supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews and grows as God causes it to grow. So how do churches grow and change? Not by human effort, not by human tactics, not by human will, not by coercion, but by the grace of God. God is the one who makes his church grow. So this is why the language of the Apostles' Creed is so, remember, we're talking about the Apostles' Creed, right? Why the language of the Apostles' Creed is so important and so necessary. Because it leads us to confess what? I believe in the Holy Catholic Church. What? No, no, not just I attend, or I'm a member of, or I belong to, or I participate in, or I serve. No, I believe. In the church, why that language? Because the church is not just a human institution. It's a work of divine grace that must be embraced by faith. There is more to the church than meets the eye. And it takes faith to believe that God is present in the way that you can't see, even amidst all the flaws and failings, and that God is doing something through his body even beyond its mistakes. The Apostles' Creed's language is an invitation to faith, things that you can't see with human eyes. We see that all throughout the Creed, right? We can't see with human eyes that God created all things. We believe it by faith, and so we say, I believe in God, the maker of heaven and earth. We can't see with human eyes that Jesus was born of a virgin Mary. We believe it by faith, and so we confess, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the virgin Mary. And we can't always see with human eyes that the church actually is of supernatural origins, of God, belonging to him, sustained by him, recreated in him. See, one of the reasons why this is so important is because our generation 
is keenly aware of the church's fallibility, maybe more so than any generation before us. And that's not all a bad thing. There's a, a new market honesty with which people engage the life of the church, a, a more honest engagement with the history of the church's past as well, mistakes that have been made, incredibly grave ones included. Our generation is aware of the church's fallibility, but we must also grow to believe in the true supernatural character of the body of Christ, which must be embraced by faith. I believe this is one of the biggest discipleship challenges in our generation. And it's important that we grow in this in order that we do not give up on Christ's church or abandon her. And that begins by starting to see that there's sort of an invisible sign, an invisible sign outside based on God's word that says, I'm beautiful inside. And maybe even a big emoji with God's eyes full of love looking upon the church. And we're based on faith and not even in trust in human beings or human leaders or human communities, but trust in Christ that we might say, hey, hey, honey, or myself, stop the car. Let's roll on in. Let's try it again. Let's walk with God's people. Let's belong to the church. Let's limp together. Let's believe in Christ's work in his own body. I say this, and I know some people might say, well, that's easy for you to say you're a pastor. You know, you're part of the establishment, right? You're part of the machine. And I might reply, actually, being a pastor may actually give me a view to even more of the church's flaws, that I might actually be able to see even more reason not to eagerly or not to easily trust by faith that God is at work in the church. And I'm also well aware that as a pastor, my own weaknesses, sins, and temptations are part of the problem too. So I get it. I really do. And that's why this is a call, not just to what eyes can see or what hearts can feel. This is a call to faith, an invitation to engage Christ's church with faith. And when we do, it begins, I think, to change our attitude, our disposition, and even our behavior as we move our way through the church. How? I think it begins to give us a gracious spirit. And not only as we see our own flaws, knowing that we too are people saved by grace, but when we begin to believe that the church, as flawed as it can be and is, is a possession of God, is the bride of Christ. And so we are handling this possession with stewardship, humility, and care, and readiness even to forgive. It should not, should not miss us that Paul is writing this letter to a people that completely rejected his leadership, completely stomped on his reputation, slandered him repeatedly, and here he is basically coming in and saying, I love you. What? 
grace and a forgiving spirit, even towards Christ's church. They're deeply flawed and full of a track record of failures, as many churches are, and yet the apostle loves, and yet we are called to love, and yet Jesus loves, most of all, loves his church, perseveres with his bride, and in that spirit he leads us to hope for the church's growth and change. Please understand when I'm saying that this leads us to love Christ's church, that believing in the supernatural character of the church gives us a more gracious spirit towards the church, I don't mean that we're just overlooking its deep mistakes and flaws. I'm not saying that we are brushing under the rug the things that need to be changed in the grave systemic and individual uh, failures that often are found in churches. In fact, what we find in Paul's language here is hope of the possibility of change. He says in verse 2, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, and what? Called to be his holy people. So you're not only loved as God's special possession, you, you need a work to be holy. You need to work to love. You need to work to repent. You need to work to actually be what God intended his people to be. And so having a gracious spirit towards Christ's church and a loving disposition is not at odds with the importance of calling the church to truth, calling the church to repentance, calling the church to renewal and humility. It all can be pursued in Jesus' name. Do you believe in Christ's church? And we shouldn't be surprised that he would call us to see beyond appearances. We shouldn't be surprised to hear Christ himself call us to love his bride even despite its outward appearance of foolishness and flawedness because isn't that the very heart of the Christian faith? To look upon the cross of Christ and all of its foolishness, and all of its seeming, how can the world be saved by a death on a Roman cross? Well, that simply set the paradigm. That simply set the stage. This is how God has always worked redemption in his world through weak and broken means. This very same letter, later in the very same chapter, the Apostle Paul will remind the people that the cross of Christ appeared to be a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. God has always used outwardly broken, unimpressive, even flawed things and people to achieve a glorious redemption through his Son in this world, and he doesn't stop doing that even in the church. C.S. Lewis, the great English writer, theologian, has a famous quotation often repeated where he speaks about the importance of recognizing the possibilities of people being transformed, changed in Christ, so much so that one day you won't even recognize what they're going to one day become. And he wrote this about people. It is a serious thing to remember that the dullest, 
most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would strongly be tempted to worship. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities, it is with the awe and the circumspection proper to them that we should should conduct all our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. And so maybe we could extend Lewis's thinking even to the church and say this, if the church is actually a gathering of such people, transformed people with such promise in the future, though today seeming dull, unimpressive, and even flawed, that perhaps it is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities that we should conduct all our dealings with churches because there are no ordinary churches. You have never belonged to a mere church. They are all supernatural churches of God. And so, beloved, for all its flaws, this side of heaven, do you believe? in the supernatural character of Christ's church by faith. Will you confess, I believe in the holy, I believe, sometimes against belief, sometimes against the evidence, I believe in the holy Catholic supernatural church. Honey, stop the car. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for helping us to see just angle sides to what you have built, what you are building in our midst in Christ's church, that this is the body of Christ that belongs to you. And even though we're often wounded, sometimes deeply so, often frustrated, discouraged, We believe, we believe that you are at work. We believe that you are protecting the church. We believe that this is more than just human structures, personalities, and programs, but this is the very body of Christ. We believe, help our unbelief, and help us in that belief to grow in our grace and our love for Christ's church, which belongs to you. Oh, Lord, teach us to love your church. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.